As we begin our time in God's Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings of our songs and prayers and scriptures that we've read, the ways that we have worshipped together already. Lord, as we break open the Word of Life and study deeply from it, Lord, I pray that you would bless my efforts, Lord, that you would give me the words to say that would encourage and build up, and that you would take away those words that would distract or lead astray. And Lord, that you would open the ears and the eyes of those who hear and read that they might be built up as well, that they might uh, be encouraged to leave this place ready to serve you. Lord, I pray that you would bless us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 3 today as we take a shift in uh, our study of discipleship. So far, so far we've been working through the definitions of disciples or, or of discipleship. And uh, we've defined who a disciple is and how we are to make disciples, how are we are to be disciples. And then the way of life, the way that we are to walk in this world as disciples. And so we've been doing a lot of definition work. We've looked at Greek words. We've done all of that. Uh, and now we're shifting from uh, definition to application. So uh, in turning from definition to application, I want to start on that journey of showing you examples and applying uh, the life of discipleship to your life. Uh, I want to start with a study of the Beatitudes. And so over the next uh, 10 weeks, we're going to study each beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and look at this beautiful uh, statement of Christ and, and what that means for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to start uh, with the first beatitude uh, this morning, but before we do, I need to explain what a beatitude is. Because it's a word that's thrown around, you've probably heard the word before, and you might notice that it's kind of an amalgamation or a combination of two different words, uh, beautiful or benediction and uh, attitude. And so the Beatitudes are a beautiful set of paradoxical blessings that Jesus announces at the beginning of his teaching ministry. These blessings are the introduction to his famous Sermon on the Mount. It's fun, funny, uh, uh, even unbelievers know about the Sermon on the Mount because it's kind of the core teaching or the core example of Jesus' teaching. And these Beatitudes, they're given as, interestingly, the very first words of the very first sermon that is recorded in the New Testament. But what are they exactly? Now, some people read the Beatitudes and they think that uh, really they read the whole Sermon on the Mount this way, uh, that this is a set of uh, required attitudes that the disciple of Christ is to have. In other words, if you're to be a disciple of Jesus, then you better force these attitudes upon yourself. You better act right. You better have the right attitudes in your heart. Others view the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as a future reality that will come when Jesus returns. And so people look at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and they say, you know, there's no way you know, on this side of the return of Christ that anybody can do these things. 
And so this must be a future reality. This must be the way the, the millennial kingdom will be. And so people say, well, this is something Jesus gives for us to hold on to as a future reality for the return of Christ. But I think both of those views are wrong because they miss what Jesus is doing here. The Beatitudes are not commands and they are not a future reality. They are a pronouncement of the blessings of the new kingdom to those on whom that kingdom is bestowed. They are an announcement, a calling out, if you will, of those on whom the kingdom of God is coming. And so to see that, let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, God's word says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to see two points from the text this morning. I want you to see the benevolent king and the blessed of the kingdom. The benevolent king and the blessed of the kingdom. So first, consider the benevolent king. To understand what Jesus is doing in these Beatitudes, we have to catch some very important imagery. There is some very important imagery that Matthew sets up about how all of this Sermon on the Mount happens. And you notice that in verses 1 and 2. In fact, there are four words that I want to focus on that Matthew mentions in these first two verses. The four words are these. Crowd, mountain, sat, and mouth. Alright, so all of those words are important to what is going on in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we, we have to start by asking, who is this crowd to whom Jesus is preaching? Now in order to catch that, you kind of have to look back at verses 23 and 25. And when you look back at those, three, uh, at those verses, you'll read that Jesus has just begun his ministry and he's kicked off with this whirlwind tour throughout the region of Galilee. Now, Galilee is the northern area. Actually, it's above the northern kingdom of Samaria. And it's around the Sea of Galilee, as we know. And it is a very pagan land. In fact, it is a mingling of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, it, it had an area uh, known as the Decapolis, which was a, an area of ten cities in which a lot of Romans lived, a lot of Greeks lived. So it was a very metropolitan area, a very uh, mixed area of Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and the other uh, uh, Middle Eastern countries. So um, Jesus has gone through all of these, uh, these towns in the region of Galilee, and he's per performed healings, he's cast out demons, he's preached. And you can imagine that at every stop along this journey, he's picked up followers. And, and every town, he leaves the town with a new group of people or with a, a, a new uh, a set of members that have joined this congregation that he's gathering together. And some were those who had been healed. 
Some were those who had seen the miracles and were amazed and wanted to follow Jesus. And still others were the curious or the offended religious leaders or the grifters that saw an opportunity to make a, uh, make a little money off of this spectacle. And so Jesus amasses this crowd, likely in the thousands, from all over the Middle East. It says in those verses that I just mentioned, it says Syria and Galilee and Judea. And it even says be the regions beyond the Jordan. Now, when I say that, if you're paying attention, you're thinking about the Old Testament, maybe there's a light bulb that should go off. A light bulb that should go off when you read about a mixed crowd that is brought together by miracles and they are led from beyond the Jordan to a mountain. Does that sound familiar? There's a story. It takes up a whole book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, in which God sends a man to a region beyond the Jordan to call his people out of pagan lands and he calls them through miracles to go with him into the wilderness to a mountain. That is the story of the nation of Israel that was led out of Egypt by Moses into the wilderness of Sinai. And so we see here this connection between the crowd and the people of Israel in the story of Exodus. But the connections get even stronger than that. Notice the second word here. Notice the word mountain. Now, when we read this word, we could think that Jesus is just being practical. That he's getting up high enough that he can speak to thousands of people. And that's just all that's going on here. But I don't think that Matthew intends to waste this word on practicality. Jesus leads this crowd to a mountain to make a connection. Again, remember the story of Israel's exodus. Moses leads the people out of Egypt and to Mount Sinai, right? A mountain on which the people would worship the Lord. And if that isn't good enough for you, consider the third word, sat. Now the word sat doesn't seem all that significant to you unless you're thinking about the role of a preacher or a song leader. If you're going to preach to thousands of people and you want every one of them to hear you, you do not sit down. Because you, when you sit down, you cannot form your diaphragm right to pro- project your voice in a way that everyone will hear. So why on earth does Jesus sit down when he's got to preach to thousands of people? Well, the reason is that Jesus is taking the position of a rabbi. You see, rabbis were the legal experts of Jesus' day. They were the great teachers of the Old Testament law. And they did not stand when they talked. They sat. So Jesus leads a crowd to a mountain and he sits like a great teacher over his people. And then the last word that we see connects all of this together. The word mouth. Now, when Matthew writes this, it's very redundant if you think about it. He says he opened his mouth and talked. Well, of course he opened his mouth. He didn't teach with sign language. So why is it that, why is it that Matthew mentions the idea that Jesus would open his mouth? 
It's because Matthew wants to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus spoke. That he, uh, that he wants to draw our attention to the very act of Jesus' speech. Now, why is that? So the crowd we've already connected is like the Israelites who were delivered by God's uh, miracles and they were led into the wilderness to a mountain. And Jesus is like Moses, who uh, is a great teacher and lawgiver. But Jesus isn't just Moses. Jesus is more than Moses. Now, when Moses got to Mount Sinai, did Moses stand on the mountain and preach to the people the law of God? No, he didn't. In fact, this is a part of the story we often don't remember correctly. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it doesn't... Uh, Exodus chapter 20 actually happens before Moses goes on the mountain to get the tablets. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, notice how it begins. It says, And God spoke all these words. When the people of Israel got to Mount Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments directly. He spoke to them with his own mouth. In fact, Moses has to go up on the mountain to get the tablets because when the people heard the voice of the Lord, they were told, they were so terrified that they told Moses, Don't you ever let that happen again. You go and talk to God for us. We don't ever want to hear him again because it is too terrifying. So, God speaks directly to His people and gives them His law. So, go back to this mountain in Galilee. Jesus isn't just greater than Moses who teaches His people. Jesus is the very Word of God. Not only does He speak as a lawgiver, not only does He speak as a great teacher, but He speaks as God Himself. And not once, if you read all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, not once in the whole Sermon on the Mount does God say, Thus says the Lord. No, He says, You have heard it said, but I say. Jesus speaks with the very authority of God because Jesus is the very Word of God. So in all of this, we see what, God, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is announcing the new covenant that God promised back in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. In announcing these blessings, Jesus is announcing the inauguration of his kingdom. In dispensing the laws of the Sermon on the Mount, he is defining what this new covenant community will look like. So his first act in establishing the this new covenant is to define who's in the covenant. So if you have a covenant, you have members of that covenant. And the Beatitudes are a declaration of those who are in the new covenant. And this leads me to my second point, the blessed of the kingdom. 
So in verse 3, Jesus begins the Beatitudes by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, how beautiful a statement to begin the new covenant with. Let's consider all of its parts. Consider first this powerful statement, blessed. We love to use that word blessed in the South, right? And there's a particular phrase we like to use it with. What's, what phrase do we like to use it with? Y'all know. Bless his heart. And, and it all, that, that phrase means uh, so a thousand different things depending on how you say it, right? It could mean, I pray the Lord's blessing on your situation and I hope that God will work it out for you. Or it could mean, you're driving me up a wall and I hope you die, right? It could mean anything between those two possibilities. It's all a matter of context and how you say it, right? As to, as to what you mean by bless your heart. But when we, when we read the word bless in Scripture, it doesn't mean that we wish someone good health and it's not an idea of a state of mind. The word blessed shows up at the very first of the Bible. In the very first chapter, when God creates the animals and the humans, in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 22, it says, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. We find the same thing in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. After the flood, God blessed Noah and his family, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. We find it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where God calls Abram out of the land of Ur and into the land of Canaan. And he says that I will bless you and I will make your name great and I will make you a blessing to the world. So you see, if uh, the word the word blessed or bless means life giving, it is a life giving word in order to be fruitful, God must bless In order for life to be sustained and even our very lungs to fill with air, God must bless. I find it fascinating. One of the shows that I like to watch is uh, a show on the History Channel called Alone. I don't know if y'all have ever watched it, but they take these guys, these survivalists, out into usually the Canadian wilderness and they just drop them off and they're supposed to survive with ten items as long as they can. And, and they go all pretty much all the way through winter in Canada or in the upper uh, parts of Canada. So you can imagine how brutal that gets. And when it gets that brutal and all you've got is 10 items and you're trying to survive and you're catching rabbits and squirrels and, and, uh, and fishing and all of that, you can imagine that everything you catch matters, right? And what's fascinating is you'll have these, some of these folks are, are hippies and they'll, 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 they'll be talking about, you know, how they don't really believe in anything other than, uh, you know, that they might be kind of spiritual, but they don't really believe in anything. But every time, every time on that show that they catch something or they kill something that they're able to eat after they've been starving for days, the first thing out of their mouth is thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, what are they thinking? They're thanking, whether they know it or not, they're thanking God because it is God who gives life. It is God who blesses. It is God who sustains. But God doesn't just bless physical life. God blesses us 
with spiritual life. So in Psalm 1, as we read earlier, David writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And David goes on in that psalm to say, The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In other words, to have eternal life, to have spiritual life, God must give it. It must be by God's work that we have fellowship with Him. It must be by God's work that we're forgiven. It must be by God's work that we're redeemed. And second, notice who it is that Jesus blesses in this first beatitude. Blessed are the who? The poor in spirit. Now remember, Jesus is proclaiming this blessing over a mixed crowd of the ailing, the possessed, the crooked, the hard-hearted, and the proud. He's announcing the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And who does he say that this kingdom is for? It's not for the Pharisees standing in the crowd with their arms crossed, scowling uh, on their fa- with a scowl on their face, watching everything that Jesus says, watching this carpenter sit like a rabbi and act like Moses. It's not for the Sadducees concerned about this large mass of people putting their political power at risk. It's not for the Herodians who used and abused the people over whom they ruled. It's not for the money grubbers like Judas who would use this new movement for his own, politi- own personal gain. No, the kingdom of God is for the broken. The kingdom of God is for those who lay on the bed of affliction for 30 years, praying every night to be delivered, and just barely believing that it's worth praying one more time. The kingdom of God is for those the crowd does not see. The woman who has not been in church in years for, for so long that because of the glares of others that now she doesn't even know if God sees her. The kingdom of God is for those the crowd would stone if they could see behind the curtain. The woman shackled by her sins with no way of escape. The kingdom of God is for those that this crowd would hang for treason. The tax collector jaded by years of compromise. The kingdom of God is for you. Are you broken by the weight of your sins? Do you recognize that there is no escape from the judgment of God? Do you see that even though you might have all the riches in the world, you are a wretched sinner who cannot be worthy of God's kingdom? If you do, then hear the blessing of Jesus Christ today, for it is to such people that this kingdom has come. It is only those who know that they are Inable, incapable, uh, who understand their own inability, who understand their own unworthiness, who are the very people that Jesus came to save. As Miss Luverne read from her psalm today, that God's very agenda is to rescue the poor and the oppressed. Those who have no way of earning God's favor 
who have nothing to offer. It is to those very kingdom that uh, to those very people that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come for those who repent and believe, who recognize that they can bring nothing to God but an empty hand that receives His good gifts. So won't you come today in repentance and faith and receive this kingdom? Let's pray.